Hello there, prolific authors. How's your week of writing going? Well, I hope. I have a really fun interview for you today. So let me ask you a question. Do you ever wonder how uber successful, internationally best-selling authors approach their writing careers? Well, you might be able to find out today if you listen to the interview. I am interviewing just such an author. It is prolific, award-winning, and internationally best-selling author Michael Brent Collins, who is probably best known for his horror writing. In this interview, we're going to discuss writing conferences, the pandemic, why horror is the most moral genre, and why horror and romance are practically the same genre. <laughs> yes, that is something that he suggests, and I got to say, he's got a point. So I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. Michael Brent has some awesome insights, and yeah, let's just learn from a master. Welcome to the Prolific Author Podcast. Let's face it, readers read fiction to feel emotion and be transported and transformed. In this ongoing digital revolution, where online marketing is always in flux, the only way to create a sustainable author business and live off your royalties is to write transformational stories, market at every stage of the author journey, and cultivate a loyal audience of readers. Fortunately, there's never been more opportunity to make a living as a fiction author. Hi, I'm Liesl Hill, USA Today bestselling author and story clarity coach. When I'm not dictating my own stories about dragons, serial killers, and dystopian worlds, I help other authors write their own transformational fiction, position them as bestsellers, and market them like pros. Join me on the podcast where I give writing tips, marketing how-tos, story advice, and interviews with other authors who are in the trenches just like you and making it work. We are prolific authors. So we are here with Michael Brent Collings, who is an internationally best-selling author. How are you today, Michael Brent? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. We were just talking about uh, how things have been for us during the pandemic and uh, how, how have things been at your house? Uh, they've been good. Uh, like we were talking about, no one's eaten each other. So <laughs> um, I always think of like, I had to watch the movie Lord of the Flies when I was in high school and this right. scene where the boys are basically trying to savage one another and <laughs> one of them gets a like a boulder rolled onto him and and I'm like that was Thursday but today we're pretty good okay good. I was gonna say when I was growing up we had a house full of kids so that was kind of just Monday night at my house you know yeah yeah <laughs> we as long as long as we can clean up and put back the boulder it's fine yeah yeah for sure and it's funny because um, the last time we saw each other was um, February of 2020. We went to LTUE down at BYU and we were really lucky actually because it was like a week later that everything locked down. So we just kind of I know. got that conference right under the wire. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, and it's everything's been canceled since then. But it was funny because we were on a dystopian panel together. So it's funny that you bring up Lord of the Flies. I think we probably talked about that on the panel at least a little bit. <laughs> and it was probably already on everybody's mind. I was, I, I remember going to that and I was like, I, I was expecting you to phone call halfway there and be like, just go home. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't, we got, we got the conference in and we kind of had to live on that for over a year, you know? <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess Fanex is happening in Utah this year. So good, good. Uh, things are opening up again. Yeah, they are. They are. I'm glad. I'm so glad things are opening up. Um, so yeah, why don't you why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you write? You're you're a very prolific author, which is the title of my podcast. So talk talk to us about what you write and and why you write it. Why you feel feel called to to be an author? 
Oh, uh, well, I write a little bit of everything. Um, mm -hmm. I'm best known for horror, but I have written thriller, suspense, science fiction. Uh, this book over here, I can never do this. There we go, that one. There you go, you do it. <laughs> um, that is a genre bender, so it's thriller, sci-fi, horror, with a touch of supernatural kind of thing. Um, and I've written about, gosh, I think I've, I'm somewhere between 40 and 50 books at this point. Hmm. And as far as, you know, it's funny that you say, like, why am I called to write? Um, because I don't feel like I am. I feel like I, I genuinely tried to be successful at grown up jobs. And this is just the only thing that I've ever been able to pay bills with. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's, that's kind of a calling, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I get, you know, my, my calling is to suck at everything except for this. Um, I guess that's legit. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh, how funny. So do you have a, a particular um, genre that you prefer one over another? Or do you just write what is, what you feel like writing at the time? Uh, well, a little of both. I mean, I am best known for horror. And so whenever I stray from that for too long, um, my fans definitely kind of make it known that I should start scaring them again. Like they haven't had that for a while. Um, and I have a couple of, like I have a popular series called the stranger series. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's about a, a bad guy who is picture Batman on steroids. Like if <laughs> Batman was really aggressive, <laughs> Um, this is the main character of that series and he goes around and, and fixes bad people and makes sure that they learn their lesson. And if he has to kill them to do that, that's the price of a good lesson sometimes. Right. And so when I stop writing that series for too long, I definitely get emails. Um, but other than that, it's, it's kind of, I get to write what I am excited about and I've been very blessed to have, a fan base willing to sort of follow me around on that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I write, I don't write as many genres as you do, but I write three, depending on how you look at it, maybe four. Um, and I actually do have a, a decent chunk who will write everything that I read. So do you find that, that a lot of your audience will just read anything because they're fans of you? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that's more and more the case. I mean, mm -hmm. it was like 10, 20 years ago I know you wrote one, you know, if you were a legit author, you wrote one book a year or you were seen as a hack and you <laughs> stayed in your wheelhouse. And I think that was as much because your publishing company didn't want to have to figure out how to get you on a different shelf at Barnes and Noble. Right. Um, but now the shelves, you determine them by putting, here's the shelves my book belongs on. And you do that yourself. And mm -hmm. more and more people I think are looking for an author that they can trust. And I've even had times where like I wrote, write romance under a pen name mm -hmm. and I've had people say, I hate romance, but you wrote this. So I'll give it a shot. Huh, turns out I like romance. <laughs> <laughs> so you're opening readers minds as well as them yeah. being open-minded yeah, enough to follow you, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the flip happened actually when I had a fan email me and say, I bought my mom a Kindle um, and she only reads what was the word? It was like aggressively trashy horror novel, <laughs> or I mean, a uh, romance novels. Like she just hates them. And so she, her mom couldn't figure out how to work the Kindle. So my fan says, I put a bunch of 
romance on and then snuck in the loon and the deep which are two of my horror titles and she said my mom has read six of your books in the last wow. three weeks nice. um so yeah it's nice to be able to kind of broaden people's horizons because there's so many good stories everywhere and it's it kind of right. hurts my heart when someone's like i only read this kind of book mm -hmm. I, that just says to me they've never read a good example of right. a different genre right yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. So um, in terms of your Stranger series, I have not read your new one, Synchronicity, but I read Stranger Still, and I think it was at the end of last year. I remember it was during 2020. And I really loved your villain in that. Like I kind of took inspiration from that villain because he was just all kinds of crazy and I loved it, you know? So how do you go <laughs> about um, crafting your characters, your villains and your characters? How do you make them like really dynamic and, and mem memorable? Uh, I think part of that's just experience. Part of it I know is I am genuinely enamored of and fascinated by people. Like when I go to the shopping, uh, the, the shopping mart, I can't <laughs> use words today. Apparently when I go to the grocery store, um, I'm always looking around and come kind of rubbernecking and enjoying the interactions that are occurring around us, you know, yeah. uh, I'll notice a boyfriend and girlfriend who are young and obviously kind of awkward, but still really into each other and <laughs> trying to figure out if this is a real date or if going to the candy aisle isn't sufficient. And, <laughs> you know, looking at grandparents with little babies, they have kind of forgotten how to deal with and things like that. <laughs> and I just, I love watching that stuff. And I think some of that enjoyment of others translates into the stories uh, and I think some of it too is just I've been around literature for so much of my life my father was a creative writing director for okay. a university and it infects you you know mm -hmm. you become sort of aware not just of the imagery and of the story but of the sound of the words and and sometimes making something interesting you know and dynamic is a nothing more than a process of saying how can I take this moment and make it completely different in two sentences you know how can I adjust language to turn this from joy to terror and when you're doing that with a person involved that scene becomes your definition of them you know these people yeah. only exist on the page and your brain kind of fills in the dynamism as long as I'm giving you a little bit of a springboard to work off of. Right, right. So um, not putting in so many details that the reader's imagination can't fill some of it in, right? Yeah, I think it's important to be clear. And, right. and also, I think it's important to say like for new authors, no matter what, you're gonna get ripped because you can see <laughs> reviews for a book of mine that are like, this guy describes every rock in the <laughs> desert. How can he do this? And then three reviews down, it's like, this guy doesn't know how to take his time and, and do any kind of description or character. We're just going from one thing to the next. So no yeah. matter what, you're not going to make everybody happy. But right. I think the biggest things, if you're going to really kind of lock down a scene, you want to have a sense of the geography where everything important is in the room that you're in mm -hmm. um, and who is there. And obviously you want to put some characters together that have some life to them. And again, that people are irrational seeming to us. You know, how many times do we say, oh, that person's crazy. And right. what we're really saying is I don't understand 
how they came to this conclusion that they're operating under. Mm-hmm. And you can do that in books. You make the person do something that does not fit, that's inherently jarring. And then you get to explain why. And that rationalization, you know, the interesting part is where you do something surprising. And then the connection part is where you teach the reader, here's why they did it. And to them, it wasn't surprising. To them, it was the only, this character's only possible choice. Um, And so you, you get something that's interesting, but that still makes sense and is still approachable. Yeah. And that's actually the best way to hook the reader all the time is to start with the surprising thing and then they want to know why or what happened. And so they'll keep reading. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and what about what about your plots and your actual, you know, arcs? Do you have any particular tips or tricks you do for those? Or are, are you a plotter or are you a pantser? We should go into that. Uh, a little bit of both. both okay. um, some books, if it's a mystery with a twist at the end kind of thing, that I need to build to, and it's got a lot of moving parts in it, then that one I'll tend to outline out. Um, I wrote a humorous urban fantasy mystery called The Longest Con, and that one, you know, had a 10 page outline kind of thing where I really <laughs> had to hit every beat. Right. And I remember my, my poor wife walked in for one of my books and I had moved every piece of furniture in our <laughs> living room to the sides. And the whole floor was covered in note cards. (laughs) And I'm just like putting them all in the order because I knew everything that had to happen. And now I have to put it in the right order. So it's interesting and, you know, surprising, but not confusing. So sometimes I'll be very detailed. Other times I'm kind of like, I have a general idea. Mm -hmm. I'd really like the good guy to win at the end. (laughs) Let's find out how that happens, you know, and page 800 of the thousand pages I'm like oh I get who he is now (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) and and it's fun to have that flexibility yeah for sure for sure and I think that's I think everybody's a little bit of both I mean I'm definitely more plotter than pantser but as I've started working with authors and and teaching more I've realized that I do pants a lot more than I ever realized you know when I was yeah just doing it on your own so I think it's a continuum for everybody yeah oh for sure it's not like a binary thing and I think look if you're outlining to the point where you're really not pantsing at any point you're just taking dictation from yourself I mean that's really not very fun so even if I do have all those note cards that's just story beats and I will Mm -hmm. still uh, when it wasn't coronavirus lockdown all the time I would go to McDonald's or to the local supermarket and hook into their Wi-Fi. And I just sit there for a whole day and write because like, it's nice being around people because we all have this golem lifestyle in our little caves. Right. And um, every once in a while, I would just start giggling. So I'm this Unabomber guy in the corner, (laughs) hunched over grizzly, like, (laughs) and those were sort of the delightful moments where even with an outline, between this point and this point, I had recognized and realized something that I didn't know until that moment. And those are the delightful things for authors. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, the other thing is the biggest um, complaint I get from pantsers is that they, they have a hard time forcing themselves to outline. And I think it really just comes down to letting your brain relax so that your creativity can flow. So 
you know, yeah. I, I think no matter how you do it, that's what you're doing, whether you're doing it for your outline or doing it for your, you know, if you're the person in the cafe giggling. I mean, it's just like once the creativity starts flowing, you know, then you start really connecting things and getting a lot of inspiration. Yeah. And I, I think I think you're totally right. Like a lot of the difference between kind of a higher level author, and I don't mean that like in importance as a human, just someone who's practiced more and right. is more assured in their craft some of it like you have to learn up to here i mean to be competent you have to have a certain level of craftsmanship ship um but after that the difference from here to you know your authors you really admire a lot of it is just learning how to get out of their own way you know right. they've got the skills at this point and the rest of it is just practicing and honing to the point that the stuff they already know just explodes out of them yeah and yeah. I liken it to like a pole vaulter who in the Olympics you know when they're running they're not going like left right left right breathe in breathe out press the pole lean you know they're just right doing it and and that's the kind of performance you have in any job mm -hmm. once you've learned it and have practiced it and you just it becomes part of the way you function right right I, I yeah I totally agree with that I totally agree yeah, so um, let's shift let's shift gears a little bit, and um, I want to talk a little bit about story and why people love story and why everybody loves to be entertained. Um, one thing that I've I've listened to you present a couple of times at at the conference actually is your paper about why Christians, especially, tend to be drawn to horror. I think that's like the most fascinating uh, topic, but you you do a really good job with explaining why, um, and I think that it can actually be. I mean, if you go a little bit less specific, it can be expounded to why, why people love story in general. But could you just mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, as far as the just a quick precy of the Christian horror thing mm -hmm. um, or religious person, even you can broaden it out right. because a lot of religious people, devout people, they're like, I hate horror. And you talk to them and you realize what they hate is the horror movie poster. Like they hate kind of the grungy, nasty, gritty feel of that image in their head. But right. then you discuss what horror is and you realize it's a very, I mean, like anything else, it has the potential to be a moral sinkhole. Right. Um, that's a determination made by the author. Mm -hmm. But it is also, horror is potentially the most moral of all the genres. Um, people say, why do you like horror? And I say, because horror is the genre of hope. It's the one where everything's terrible. And if you work really hard and make the right choices and have a little bit of grace, sometimes, you know, from deity reaching down to help. I mean, Stephen King's famous for that. So mm -hmm. is Dean Koontz. Um, and sometimes grace just meaning you find the strength within yourself. And that's something that connects with religious people. And they think, right. oh, I thought it was just all blood and boobs. And you're like, no, no, no. It's putting people in a bad situation and then allowing them to escape it. Mm -hmm. That's the like the uplifting horror. And I think that that works. Then if you talk about broadening it out, listen, we live in difficult times. And I don't care if you're somebody living in a shack in a third world nation, or if you're an heiress or an heir of a billion dollar company who's had everything handed to them. Um, I tell my kids, remember when you look at people, 
that person, their life is the hardest thing that they've ever done. Mm. We're all going through our own version of extremists. And right. some things that really make you struggle with would be candy for me. And some mm-hmm. things that are hard for me, vice versa. Right. And some things, you know, that are just like nothing parts of your day. I, my wife goes through her day and I come in and I look at the stuff she's doing and I'm like, I would kill myself. I just, <laughs> you do such amazing things. And then she walks out and she sees like all my computer. Cause I have several screens going with algorithms for marketing and an outline here and half of a book here. And she's like, I couldn't do that. And so we all have to live in worlds where a great deal of it is based in fear to some extent, you know, like I'm going to go out the door, what's going to happen. I'm going to go to my job is today. I, the day I lose it through no fault of my own, or am I going to be able to see through this project? How are my kids going to turn out? And so horror is about those questions fundamentally. I mean, it's like basically horror is once we've peeled apart everything external, because that's what horror does is it always separates people. It Mm -hmm. takes away their resources. You know, it takes away their support group. It takes away their, their physical abilities, the things that they have, you know, you never start out a horror novel with Rambo and a billion dollars to work with and the U.S. Army, you know, right. like it's always somebody in a snowstorm and their freaking cell, cell phone doesn't even work, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you separate all that other stuff out and then the horror author says, but look, maybe you can make it anyways. Mm-hmm. And it's making sense of that, that sort of sensibility that we have, that we have to figure out where we lie on. I can't do it without help. And I don't need anything at all. And right. horror movies and horror stories exist in that continuum. It's like, you've got nothing. So what can you do with that? Mm-hmm. And, and it helps us make a framework for our own lives. Yeah. Yeah. It helps people be, I think, um, more resourceful and, and have hope, like you said. And I think, too, it's a matter of the further you slide into darkness, the further you have to move back into the light so that's true of yeah. even like romantic comedies and things but it's just a lot darker when you get into the horror areas yeah and it, you know it's it's funny that you say romantic comedies because people are surprised occasionally when they're like oh you write romance as well romance and horror those are the probably the two closest genre interesting um because they're both again they're both about every romance starts out with usually a female protagonist she's lost everything she's scarred emotionally she can't open up and she finds on the one hand you know the white knight not necessarily someone who's going to save her but the man who represents the love in her life and on the other hand you have you know the mustache guy who's like i'm going to take you away and you have the monster you have the grace and you have a storyline that's determined by choices like will i come to the good outcome or the bad come the bad outcome and the big difference honestly is that in a romance you have to have the happily ever after and in the horror novel everyone could be slaughtered right right (laughs) so would you call would you call i mean i know tragedy and horror go hand in hand so would you call tragedy sort of a horror version of of romance or something like that yeah i mean you know if you're talking about like aristotelian stuff 
there's just all there is is tragedy and comedy it's either the ridiculous or the grounded that we use to teach something i mean when they talked about tragedy back then it wasn't like sit down and we're gonna cry the whole time Mm -hmm. it was this is going to be a serious story that is meant to teach you not through the ridiculous but through things that you will associate with your own life and that's exactly what horror is i mean no anytime you see a horror movie that really affects you it's because it's grounded by something in your own life you know like one of the biggest examples of that would be night of the living dead Mm -hmm. which is a civil rights story and georgia romero didn't intend it to be (laughs) um you know people are like oh it was the first black guy who who was the protagonist in this kind of movie and romero has been very uh forward about that in some of his interviews he's like he's the only one who showed up that could act (laughs) and so it wasn't a choice but the thing that made it endure is that it has this subtext that matters to us and so night of the living dead is absolutely a tragedy Mm -hmm. um but you think about a lot of comedies they're pretty tragic I mean, yeah. they're about terrible things happening. It's just we're a little distance so we can laugh at the person. Right, right. Yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting thing to talk about going back and forth between the extremes and how people relate to stories, you know, and how we learn from them. Yeah. 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 So um, you, you mentioned computers with algorithms on them. Um, <laughs> tell us, do you have any marketing secrets that you use for your books? Ugh. Gosh, you know, I I could have answered that two months ago and and they're not secrets, but it's funny because one of the biggest problems, if you want to be an independent author today, Mm -hmm. is that you have to be an expert in a variety of different um, subjects, but you also have to be an expert in some that are constantly moving. And so if you talk about marketing, which is important today, if you wanna be an indie, you have to be involved in digital marketing. It's a pay for play market. Um, You can't just throw your book on Kindle and hope that it'll be found because there's 10 million books on Kindle. And even if you get your family and your friends to buy one, which by the way, is super hard. People think I'll get, my family, I'll get my friends, I'll sell, you know, a hundred and then they sell 10 because it's really hard to convince people to write or to read your book. Yeah. Um, So you have to get involved in this marketing. Two months ago or so, uh, Apple announced it's not sharing information with Facebook anymore uh, unless people opt in. And we all know whenever it says, do you want to share data? Nobody's like, yeah, absolutely. Look at my computer. And so Facebook's ability to target people has been very effectively hobbled. Um, And people say that's because Apple's taking privacy concerns seriously. But I also suspect it's a chance to look like a good guy and also destroy one of their big competitors. Right, right. (laughs) And, And you have to deal with that kind of thing because what worked three months ago, there are ads that I have that were just hugely well performing. And then three months ago, this change happened and it was like, you know, it just dropped off the cliff. So there's no secrets, but one thing I do encourage is if you're serious about this, you have to really open your eyes, meaning 
not like I'm going to go out and look at a specific topic. The problem with that is you can never look at something truly new. If you go looking for a topic, you already knew about it. Yeah. And you have to be willing to like read Facebook. And if I see that you, for instance, were on a podcast, even if I can't listen to it, I'm going to go check it out because maybe that's a good podcast for me. You know, so if one of my buddies shows up in a review on this website, I'll just take a look at the website. If somebody mentions that's an author friend, a word that I don't know, I'm not going to just skip it. I'm going to look that word up and see if that is, you know, some algorithm assistant. You know, there's there's things that literally claim that they'll analyze your Amazon ads in real time and make adjustments to maximize your return. And usually that's baloney. But if I see something, I'm still going to check it. And so you really do have to be willing to spend some considerable time sifting through chaff very carefully, you know, Mm -hmm. and and instead of just scrolling your Facebook wall or your Twitter feed, paying attention for buzzwords and for things you don't know and going, I'm going to click this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So are you, are you wide? You're on all platforms? Um, I was until right after coronavirus hit. Okay. So when everything really ramped up, you know, you were talking, we were at LTUE, and, uh, which is Life, the Universe, and Everything, which is the best writing conference if you can get to it. And I always want to plug them. It's such a good conference. It is. It's really and good. And we went, it is, it's wonderful. <laughs> and we come home and everything shuts and the bottom dropped out of the economy and everybody was terrified. And so my family and I, you know, we're not making a vaccine, but we wanted to help to the extent we could. So we said, well, let's make entertainment as cheap as possible. And we still have to pay rent, obviously, but what can we do? Mm -hmm. And so we took all of my books, except I think there's five that are wide because I do want some out there for people. But we took them all off the other platforms and put them on Kindle exclusively so that they could be Kindle unlimited. Yeah. And so people could read as much as they wanted for 10 bucks a month and also put everything on massive sale. Like we put it on for 99 cents down from five bucks. And we figured we'd be able to do that for, I don't know, a month, you know, before it hit us. Cause that's about a 90% royalty hit. Right. Um, and the, it was really a nice thing. You know, people are like, what, what, how are you holding up with all the lockdown and quarantine and the craziness? We've seen such amazing examples of kindness too, because we just tried to do this little thing and thought we'll keep books on for 99 cents for as long as we can, three, four weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was seven months before we raised the price at all. And it was because so many people were like, this is so nice of you. And they told their friends, hey, there's an author who actually gives a crap. And everyone started buying these books. And even now, it's been a year and three months, I think, since we did it. And we're still at $2.99. So we're still at almost 50% off just keeping the sales going because people are sharing that there's somebody, an author who really wants to help out. Yeah. And and that, that was such a surprising thing. And it was in no wise our intention. We weren't like, this will be a great way to broaden the brand. 
we were just trying to do something nice. Yeah. And boy, it came back and we got smacked in the face with 10 times more niceness than we ever managed to put out there. (laughs) That's good. That's a, that's a good story to come out of the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. And there's lots of those examples. There really are. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, um, are you planning to take them back up to full price anytime soon? Or are you just kind of waiting to see what happens? Yeah, we look, I, it would, as much as I joke about like, it would be nice to be super rich, you know, and drive around (laughs) in my solid gold Porsche and stuff. (laughs) We would really like to leave the world a little better than we found it. And so we've kept the books on sale at some point. Will they have to go back up? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We're just kind of taking it day by day and, and hoping that we can continue for the present, at least to afford to keep them cut. And even if we had to raise it, it wouldn't be back up to the full five bucks again. We bring it up as little as we can. Yeah. So we really have enjoyed participating in the universe, you know, as much as Mm -hmm. we're cut off. uh, I have a newsletter list, which by the way, you can sign up for there and -hmm. you get free books and stuff. And every time I sign off with um, something like we're alone but it doesn't mean we're apart. It just means we have to figure out new ways to hold on to each other. Mm. And I, nice. I think that's a valuable attitude to have for anybody. And particularly in times where we are so divided and apart and scared. Yeah. And um, it's done nothing but wonders for my career to be just trying to be generally nice. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's good advice all around, even when we're, like you said, even when we're not in pandemic times, just going the extra mile, being nice to people, being cool to your readers, you know, that's going to go a lot farther than trying to be too professional and author and, and not doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's like at the beginning, I said, you have to have like this level of skill, but then the difference is just getting out of your way. And right. so you've got all these people that are pretty similar skill levels and a lot of people really now you can get to know the author, maybe not be besties with them, but you follow them on social media and stuff. Right. And it's like, am I going to read this person's book and very good book, but he's kind of a douchebag or this person's <laughs> book, which is equally good. And she's awesome, you know, yeah. and, and people are going to make a choice based on who you are and who yeah. you present to be. Yeah. And I think people are, are kind of surprised to, to realize, especially with the digital revolution that most authors are actually pretty accessible. Not so much the oh, big yeah. ones like, Stephen King, but you know what I mean? Like most other authors, especially indie authors are always around, you know? So yeah, it's definitely easier to get to know them. And that's one of the reasons I like LTUE is like, it's got world level talent that shows up and in between the panels, they're sitting in the hotel lobby, just kind of chatting with whoever comes by. Right. And that is a big difference between high level author and a high level actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're Stephen King or Tom Cruise, you, no one's going to be able to talk to you. But if you are a B-list actor, no one can talk to you. <laughs> and if you're anyone under Stephen King, they'll probably be able to talk to you. You know, as an author, yeah. authors are very, we all suffer under kind of low self-esteem. And, and, <laughs> and anytime someone comes up and is like, I love your work, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> You just became my best friend. I know. 
It's true. And I know you like me for me because if I was attractive, I'd be the actor. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so what do you ever notice any big mistakes that, you know, authors who are up and coming, who are kind of trying to, to figure it all out? What are the big mistakes you see them making? Oh, gosh. Uh, which are all the mistakes I still make because um, you never, you never stop making those mistakes. Yeah. Um, probably a couple of the biggest I'd say are they focus on marketing too much. Mm -hmm. You do have to focus on marketing. It's just reality, but you also have to have a product. You know, if you're selling an empty bag, you're just selling the bag and air and no one's going to buy that from you again. Um, so the fact that I have 40 books is helpful to my marketing and a lot of new authors are like, we're going to write a book and then spend all our time marketing. I go, no, 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 no. You write that book and spend 99% of your time writing. Mm -hmm. And then for the second book, you drop that down to 95, you know, and now it's like, for me, it's 50, 50, but I have. Mm -hmm two hours of emails to answer every day right. and I have all this digital stuff happening, you know, and unless you're spending a thousands of dollars on Facebook every month, which you shouldn't at the beginning, you don't have yeah. that focus on your writing, right. focus on getting that product. And then another thing is just to be aware of uh, your audience's time. And by that, I mean, when I'm at comic cons, I'll very often buy a table or rent or whatever a space and I'll sit there and I'll sell my books and there will always be authors on the other side and this author has three titles on theirs and I've got 30 because that's the most I can fit on my table <laughs> and in the time that author takes to get through chapter one of one title I've already told 17 of these books mm -hmm. and it's really hard for authors because we're in love with our stuff. We're like, oh, this is important and it means something to me. Mm -hmm. But it's like baby pictures. You know, you go to a picnic and your relative or your coworker comes up with your baby pictures and you're kind of like, I recognize that that's an important human and it matters to you, but I'm missing <laughs> ice cream right now, you know? Right. <laughs> and what I tell authors is with your baby pictures, if your coworker comes up and says, so Timmy's face cut fire yesterday. <laughs> now you're in, you know, because <laughs> your coworker has just provided a huge entertainment value yeah. and they're being respectful. You know, they're saying like, this has such a good ending. And the ending is Timmy's face on fire. <laughs> and then they can back it up for you. They can go, okay, like, okay, the story starts nine years ago in the fallopian tube and you'll stick with it. Right. Because Timmy's face is on fire, you know, <laughs> but this author on this table over here, he's like, okay, chapter one, we open in a world like no other. It's sort of like ours, but like McDonald's is McDoon's. And like Burger King is Burger Queen. And the whole story goes on like that. And they're telling everything. And I've got like one sentence for this book. 
and one sentence for this book and one sentence for this book. And so you're being respectful of your reader's time. Mm -hmm. You're saying, instead of like, I'm going to sell you my magnificence, you're saying, how can I help you? What are you looking for? Oh, I want a, a scary book. Oh, okay, great. Do you like demons or serial killers or ghosts? I like serial killers. Oh, okay. I have a book called Strangers. It's about a family that wakes up in their house. They've been locked in. All the doors and windows are sealed. And there's a serial killer in there with them who wants to have some alone time. And I have just, instead of selling them a book, I found out what they want and said, here's what I can give you in that area. And they'll either immediately say, that's not something I want, or they'll say, oh, that sounds great. And I've literally either made the sale in, you know, under a minute right. or allowed them to move along. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't like that book, they're going to remember the author who was respectful of their time. And if their friend says, oh, I'm looking for a serial killer book, they should be like, oh, there's an author down there who's selling that book. And that happens a lot. You know, you get referrals from disinterested people because instead of shilling, instead of shoving your product down their throat, you're trying to find out what they need. And -hmm. if there's a way you can help them with that. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I I love that you put it that way because that's one thing that I, that I do tell my clients sometimes is it's perfectly okay to write for yourself and everybody starts that way, of course. Um, and of course you want to do it for you, but at the same time, if you want to make a business out of it, you kind of have to have a little bit of a mindset shift to serving your reader, whether that's through genre or tropes or, you know, giving them what they want. So I think that's a really, really good way to explain it. Yeah. And it makes it easier too, because it is, it is inherently uncomfortable for most people to sell things, right? you know, because you're trying to convince somebody to hand over something important, their money and their time. Um, one of which is irreplaceable. Once you pass by that minute, it's gone. And so it's hard to do that. But anybody passing by an old lady in the street or an old man in the street who's like sitting on the ground crying because their car, their tire has popped, like we have no compunction or embarrassment about pulling over, even if we can't fix the tire and just being like, are you okay? What can I do for you? Mm-hmm. And if you can put yourself in that mindset as an author, where you're saying, look, I am writing these books. And because I'm a business, I will write books that will help a segment of the world. You know, yeah. I'm going to help people looking for synchronicity for science fiction, horror, thriller, genre benders. And I'm going to write the book in a way that is well executed, it's competent, it's fun, it's an escape. And when I find somebody interested in those things, I will say, here's the book. And it's a $10 book and I'm selling it for $2.99 or 99 cents or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that way you are helping them with the thing they were already looking for, which is the entertainment of that kind. And you're also saying, plus I'm giving it to you for less than it's worth. Right. And so if you can elevate your level of writing to that point, you know, I get people very often, and this isn't bragging. I think I do. I'm not being falsely modest. Like Stephen King, Dean Koontz, they are the masters. And 
when somebody says you're just as good as them and some of my fans say that I'll, you know, I say, thank you. And I hope they believe it. Um, but I don't, <laughs> but if they follow up with, you should charge more because they're charging $14.99, $9.99. My response is why in the world would I do that? That's a great sales technique is to be able to say, look, I'm giving you a $15 book for three bucks. Right. Right. So you're continuing to help people throughout the process. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think it's important too that, I mean, Stephen King and Dean Coots, even their volume isn't what it used to be with the, with the digital revolution and everything. So, you know, yeah. I mean, you, you Although, may be moving you, more books Stephen, than some of the big ones, you know? I, that is surprising for people is, is, you know, I don't have the word New York Times bestseller. And, but I am a number one bestseller on Amazon, Kobo, Nook, all of this in most of their top level uh, bestseller lists I've charted and I've been a top 100 overall many times in those stores. Right. And so people are like, yeah, but that's just digital stuff. And then I say, I probably sold more this last year than most of the people you saw on the New York Times bestseller list. Right, right. Because, you know, to be on the New York Times bestseller list, you have to hit a certain number of sales in kind of a randomized picking of stores because the New York Times won't even tell how they pick that. Right. And, you know, I'm selling more books regularly in the biggest bookstore on the planet. Mm -hmm. I'm probably selling more books than those people. Um, that said, Dean Koontz, something interesting I've noticed about him he was always like Stephen King was number one in horror and cause they used to have a list of the top 100 most popular authors in each genre. Uh -huh. And which I looked at cause I was on it and that's always exciting. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm still a top horror writer. <laughs> and um, Stephen King and Dean Koontz were always one and two kind of thing. And then right before they discontinued that ranking, Dean Koontz leapfrogged it hard and stayed there. And I was like, what happened? And I realized Dean Koontz, he is doing Kindle Unlimited releases now. Uh, he is just releasing on Amazon. Um, and you can get a lot of his books in stores, but they're Amazon imprints. Right. And so even he, who is this juggernaut, I mean, he sold hundreds of millions of books. Mm -hmm. He has essentially noted there is more growth possibility in this indie market right. than I can get through staying with Scholastic or HarperCollins or whatever publishing company is still out there. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember when they said that he did a deal with Amazon and everybody was super shocked, but I was going at, eh, see, that's just telling you about the times right there, you know, yeah. but he's forward not thinking. what it used to be, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And it's paid off big for him. Right. I mean, you look at the horror and thriller lists and he's like got four books always there, usually in the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. And the other six are erotica. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing it's done. It's uh, created really niche genres and brought them into the mainstream. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So that's true. But I will say one of the failings of Amazon um, is you do get to pick as an indie or a publisher what genres your book will go into. So like you get control 
if you sent your books to Barnes and Noble, they'd look at it and go, it's Stephen King. It's horror. Mm-hmm. Even though a lot of his books are not horror. Right. right. Put it there. Cause that's where you can sell it. And in Amazon, I upload it and I go, this is horror and it's time travel science fiction. And it's also in the niche of time travel science fiction about gay detectives with club feet and a dog <laughs> named Joe. Cause there's probably a bestseller list like that. And the problem is you go on some of these, like look at the horror bestseller lists on Amazon for real. And 60% of them are very, very obviously humorous fantasy erotica not a bit of horror about them right right and these people are doing that because oddly enough humorous fantasy erotica is a really competitive niche now and they can't chart there and so they're putting their books somewhere they don't belong simply so they can say it's a bestseller and i think that's sad and and it look, I'm going to be on the horror bestseller list at this point like that. I'm good enough as far as like, I have a big enough fan base. Mm -hmm. I'll get there regularly, but I feel really bad for lots of people who can't be discovered because it's like pork your orcs volume eight has knocked them out of the number 100 on the horror bestseller spot. And it really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that that will get better as they, because the the genres are always evolving and getting more detailed. And I was going to say, I think part of that is the whole dark when people say dark fantasy that's got about 17 different meanings and so and one of them is erotica you know sometimes people say dark and and that's what they mean and I I never even thought that like until I started going into like dark romance lists or whatever and then I was like whoa that's not at all what I was thinking that it was (laughs) totally different darkness yeah Yeah. (laughs) so yeah hopefully they will um figure that out eventually but for now yeah I agree it's it's unfortunate that that happens yeah and, and for new authors, don't do that because here's the thing, you might get your little bestseller, you know, tag that you can put, mm-hmm. but first of all, most readers are, are getting pretty cagey about that kind of thing. Like right. someone will point at my book and it says number one bestseller. And I will occasionally, not occasionally, pretty regularly when I am visiting cons, they'll be like bestseller of what? Like they know how mm-hmm. it works. And I can say, look, I've been a top 100 overall on Amazon. And I've been a number one bestseller, not on horror, time travel comedies about this, this, I'm like just horror and just thriller and just science fiction. Mm -hmm. And at that point they go, Oh, that means something. Usually occasionally people will be like, but what awards have you won? You know? (laughs) And and those are people who are just looking for nitpicks and you can't help that. But if I then, if they're like, what does bestseller mean? And I say, Oh, well, I, I was on a bestseller list on Amazon. Which one? Horror. For, you know, Boning the Unicorn, part four. You know, <laughs> they're going to figure out very quickly, um, I'm not playing fair. Right. And if they do go to the horror list and they see Boning Your Unicorn, part four, they're going to be mad at that author, not just as someone who's disingenuous, but if the reader actually does buy it, like, and I wrote that book and I get someone to buy that book. Mm -hmm. They're looking for horror. They are not only not going to like the book, they're going to actively tell people to avoid me. Right. And you don't want to make enemies. You don't want to be out there. You want to be the guy or the gal that people are like, read her, read him for anything. Right. You don't want people 
actively being missionaries of your anti-church, you know, like whatever you do, don't read Michael Brent Collins. (laughs) That's just not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Good, good. Good stuff. Um, All right. So how about, I'm going to throw you a kind of a curveball question here. Um, (laughs) You are on a six hour flight with, and you get to sit next to any author alive or dead. Who would it be? And what would you ask them? Oh my, assuming that they speak my language and stuff. (laughs) Assuming, yeah, that you can communicate. Okay. Um, Let's see. Any, that is a good question. I mean, like, it's funny because most of the authors who are alive that I really, if I wanted to talk to them, I probably could because it's actually a small uh, group, you know, Uh you get to know everybody when you go to conventions and you're like, oh, I've seen that person 82 times. We'll say hi to each other. Um, (laughs) So it'd probably be a dead one. Let's see. That's a good question. I'm going to sidestep it and I'm going to say it would be Abraham, Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill. Okay. Um, both of whom wrote stuff. They're not yeah. <laughs> known as book writers necessarily, although Churchill wrote the definitive World War II history, um, but they're both just big heroes of mine. Yeah. And I would love to sit next to them and just uh, enjoy that experience. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think they were both big journalers, weren't they? Yeah. Well, everybody was back then, probably True. because yeah. you had three alternatives once the sun went down and two of them involved having more children and (laughs) you got to take a break sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Good answer. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. This was a super fun conversation. Um, thank you. I appreciate being here. Yeah. You have any last minute uh, advice you want to dispense to anybody? Um, not really. I mean, just the only thing is just to reiterate, right. You know, if you're going to be, if you're interested in this as a profession, you have to write. There are professions where you can get along with no skill and lots of sales. Like, (laughs) I'm going to be honest, I used to be a lawyer. And if you can bring in $10 million of business a year, none of the partners care if you're a good lawyer, you're going to stay at the firm. Um, But this business, if you're an indie, you can't just sell stuff. Because there is no author in the world who can afford to support themselves selling their books. What you have to do is you have to get other people to sell your books. And the only way you can do that is to get them sufficiently invested in your career. And and you can't typically do that with one book. They're invested in your longevity. And so write, 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 write get your books better and better, get them out there and offer them as that service, not as a sale, but as something you can do to make their lives better, less expensively than other people would do it. Nice. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, So where can people connect with you and find all your books? Well, uh, again, the easiest way do, do, there we go. That thing. Just text books to 66866. Standard messaging charges apply, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then you'll be on my newsletter. Uh, and it's a fun one. I have about 30,000 people on it. So it's it's nice. fairly popular and people enjoy it. Or you can just text or uh, Google my first name, Michael Brent. I'm the only Michael Brent in the world. So you'll find me easy. 
Uh, that probably won't last long, though. Some of your uh, followers will probably name their kids after you. <laughs> no, I can't imagine anybody would be that horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again for talking with us. And um, good luck with all your writing and everything. Thank you. You have a good one. You too. Taking years to write a book is so last century. Hi, I'm Liesl Hill. I help aspiring authors move toward their dreams of career authordom by mastering their story, mastering their words, and mastering their marketing. If you're ready to put your head down and do the work necessary to eventually live off your fiction royalties, then tune in each week. I'll give you actionable tips and hacks, as well as inspiring interviews with writers who are already doing this. We are prolific authors.